This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. My name is Rachel Kushner. I'm here to do the introduction. Then Ruthie Gilmore will give her talk. Then we'll have a conversation. Gilmore's 2007 book, Golden Gulag, draws upon her vast knowledge of political economy and geography to explain significant historical change and the drive to embark upon what, in California, turned out to have been the largest prison building project in the history of the world. It's a book about California, but as a case study, which tells us many things about mass incarceration generally, what it is, why it occurred, how to think about it, and what to do. Prior to publishing Golden Gulag, Gilmore organized and campaigned to diminish the scope of police, jails, and prisons in California where she was living. She considers herself a scholar slash activist and has continued her dedication to activism for the last 30 years. When I proposed to write this profile of her for the New York Times, I was aware of the depth of her experience working on grassroots campaigns and the breadth of her intellectual capacities, but I was nonetheless completely bowled over by Ruthie on the many hours we spent together talking. She knows about drama and opera and film and literature and economics and Marx and the black radical tradition. I mean, she's in the black radical tradition, is part of it. As a geographer, which is the discipline she studied and teaches, she is attuned to the way contemporary life is built and organized and how it operates. She can tell you how a state budget actually works, and I mean really tell you how it works. When the New York Times fact checkers asked her, how did you know that the population in California prisons increased 500%? They probably thought she would refer them to some policy institute where she'd gotten her information. And then the fact checkers could tell her she was wrong and tell the policy institute their methods weren't suitably rigorous. Instead, Gilmore responded, I looked through facility by facility and read their state reported population counts, which come out monthly. And I did that for every facility in California for every year between 1982 and 2005. At the end of a very intense week of fact-checking this huge article on Gilmore, people at the New York Times were saying things like, well, I'm no Ruth Wilson Gilmore, but I think the wording here sounds pretty good. (laughs) Her name had become a placeholder for smart, but not just. People were using her ideas as if they were objective fact because they'd fact-checked her ideas and realized they were correct. While working on the piece, I called some of Ruthie's colleagues and friends. Mike Davis, author of City of Courts, literally praised her for three hours. Finally, I just had to get off the phone. Ruthie knocked my socks off, Mike told me. Her knowledge base is incredibly broad, and I mean she can truly hold her own on any subject. They had worked together in South Los Angeles in the early 1990s. In that era, according to Mike Davis, Gilmore's involvement with prison work was massively against the flow. Gang sensationalism had swept the country. Ruthie did not jump on a popular cause. The opposite. She became involved in the most difficult, demoralizing, and unpopular movement. The work she did, Mike Davis said, requires extraordinary moral stamina. 
When I called Angela Davis, no relation, obviously, to Mike Davis, she told me that Ruthie had been the first person to receive the Angela Y. Davis Prize in mentorship and teaching, and that she, Angela, was extremely honored that the recipient of a prize with her name on it went to Ruthie. Angela said to Ruthie, I would love to one day receive the Ruth Wilson Gilmore Prize. <laughs> the scholar Avery Gordon told me, her ability to teach others how to think is, in my opinion, what's special about her speaking. Ruthie is an exceedingly smart woman. Her knowledge base is deep across a range of areas, including sports, where her expertise might be more surprising, but it's her analytic precision that's most striking. Gordon went on to tell me that she thinks part of Ruthie's power is that she doesn't use either jargon or manipulative rhetoric. She's not playing on people's emotions to get her ideas across. Finally, for my favorite quote from all these phone calls that I made to write this piece, she's got hospitality, the Yale professor of American studies, Caleb Smith, told me. He did not mean that Gilmore will offer you a cloth napkin when you dine at her place. He meant she reaches out to people with outstanding courtesy, with diplomacy, with a shared and common goal of understanding. This form of hospitality is not the thing for which a world-renowned scholar becomes known, and yet I believe it is one of the rarest and most impactful qualities a teacher and influential thinker can have. Ruthie's vision for the future, for what in our world needs to change, requires a messenger who can talk and listen, find out where people are, and make with them a path away from destructive institutions and precarious livelihoods and inadequate resources. Ruthie Gilmore is one of those people. It's an honor to introduce her tonight. Good evening. How is everybody? I can't see you at all, so you're going to have to let me know you're here uh, for the next um, 35 or so minutes while I'm talking uh, before then Rachel and I sit in those nice comfy chairs and talk some more. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be back in Santa Fe for the first time in about 38 years. Um, And I'm delighted to know that some of my oldest and dearest friends are in the audience, and I hope a lot of new friends, uh, people who will be newly dear to me, are here as well. So what I'm going to do for the next 34 minutes or so is to give you a sense of the kind of work that I do. And the way I'm going to do that is to describe some campaigns that I have been part of over the years. And my part in those campaigns has been quite varied. So sometimes my part has been to do the fundamental research that other people take. Other times my part has been to do the actual organizing of people on the ground and all kinds of things in between. And I'm not going to say I very many times in what I um, present to you this evening. I'm going to describe the work itself. 
And the purpose is to give everybody here in the audience a rich sense of what abolition consists of. Because I suspect that many people in the audience think abolition means absence rather than presence. So I'm going to talk about presence. The kind of world we want is the kind of world we need. So again, a couple of stories in great detail, then uh, several stories with just some highlights, and then depending on what time it is, perhaps a little more detail, perhaps not. I'll save it for the Q&A. All right, here we go. And this is in memory of the great Rosemarie Braz, the greatest organizer the world has ever known. <sighs> Everyone was surprised when the United States Supreme Court upheld a federal Ninth Circuit court ruling that declared California could not build itself out of the predicament that had made the immense prison system so deadly that at least one person a week, every week, for decades, died prematurely because of medical neglect. Premature death comes from causes that can be taken care of but are not, meaning people of any age can die prematurely. The organized abandonment, which is to say the deliberate and compounding neglect of people locked up by the California Department of Corrections, provoked a difficult 20-plus year legal journey through the federal courts. The result gained quite a bit of attention, mostly because the Supreme Court said, you cannot build your way out. What brought this, but the question that I want to put to you this evening is what indeed brought the state's building broom to a halt after it had, it had opened a prison a year, every year for 23 years. The media, both mainstream media and social media, remained fixated by the top-down actions such as the court order or Sacramento, California state capital's reluctant response. Hardly anyone wondered about what kinds of social relationships had changed in California's long-thickening carceral geography, the geography in which prisons as those kinds of buildings are produced and filled. Much less were people wondering how those changes had developed into a provisional abolitionist geography. So in this lecture, we're going to explore how organizing from the ground up interrupted California's prison building boom. And we'll think about what some of the questions are and problems that organizers puzzled over and what kinds of tasks they set themselves. How did combining legal and political struggle on the one hand and connecting labor, environmental, gender, and municipal effort on the other raise barriers to prison expansion and thereby radiate consciousness and strategy to repurpose common sense about how and where to fight. Carceral geographies developed deliberately but not inevitably. Deliberately but not inevitably. So if the prison fix is a spatial solution to social, economic, and political problems, it is necessarily then indicating places, power, and processes far beyond any group of buildings that are surrounded by an electrified fence. Therefore, spatial challenges consist not only in trying to figure out power targets in various jurisdictions, but also in identifying alternative scopes of activity that combine people 
working on a variety of problems across many different kinds of places toward ends that might not center on prison as such. So the first ex example, oh, I have one more thing to read, and then the first example. Um, practical abolitionism demands constant attention to the volatile interactions of subjectivity, how people think about themselves, and structure the kinds of constraints that people struggle within. Holding racial capitalism as the slippery foe it always has been. As we shall see, people who organized in the unstable gaps between carceral and abolition combined to make power by making connections, or what we might call an abolitionist popular front, through militantly practical pursuit of transitional goals. So the first detailed story, there's always one. At the outset, there we go. This is by Fernando Marti, fantastic designer. At the outset, the California Prison Moratorium Project, which started in the summer of 1998, wasn't certain where to begin. After many fits and starts, using research done for the first edition of my book, California Prison Moratorium Project zeroed in on the South San Joaquin Valley, so that's in Central California. They did outreach in the vast region by way of classified ads in weekly newspapers that invited people who wanted to stop a prison in their town to call a local number where a voicemail would take their information and promise a human would soon phone them back. The cost for the outreach was low, as befit a tiny organization made up entirely of volunteers who supplemented the, their modest resources with an annual afternoon bolathon fundraiser. <laughs> what they didn't know uh, excuse me, while they didn't know who they'd find, they knew every town had at least one prison opponent, often a small business person, sometimes the chronic malcontent, in other places, a journalist, a school teacher, a union organizer, or a priest. But there was always one, stranded by the flood of intuitive common sense that insisted local expenditure of hundreds of millions of dollars could not fail to improve modestly educated local people's lives. So big dollar numerators and small population denominators suggested something terrific could happen if people could only figure out how to make some of the flowing cash stick. Failure turned out to be the rule, not the exception, in most, almost all cases. So various kinds of people, frustrated for various kinds of reasons, called the California Prison Moratorium Project number. Some were not even from places facing new prisons, but rather from towns that had said yes, and then lost their night sky, or their calm roads, or saw affordable housing swept away by new developments intended for highly paid guards. Others called to complain about a new culture that disrupted the community. Violence attributed to guards' families, correctly or not as well as the fact that for whatever reasons, guards' families didn't settle near where they worked. The calls were not many, but they added up, and the organization responded and offered to meet. A quick run down the valley by six organizers over a three-day weekend turned up a number of people who eventually participated in a mini-conference held at Berkeley to discuss how best to stop prisons, and that then formed the knowledge base for a handbook that the Prison Moratorium Project wrote that's still available online if you're trying to stop a prison in your town. 
At about the same period between 1996 and 2001, the organized labor movement across the United States had been recruiting young people, mainly, although not exclusively, college students, to immerse th themselves in training. Uh, the periods were called Union Summer, to become field organizers. The union history of rural California, from the Coachella Valley up across the transverse range and through the San Joaquin Valley up into the woods and mines of the north, is a story of stark antagonisms repeated across sectors and periods, but never settled nor abandoned. Young people joined the United Farm Workers by way of Union Summer and used networks that radiated through universities and labor councils to share strategies, connect campaigns, and issue calls for solidarity and struggle. California Prison Moratorium Project learned from a prosperous farmer in the valley, uh, small by valley standards, he only had a couple of thousand acres, and from colleagues of colleagues who worked with the United Farm Workers, that new prison, a new prison was being proposed in Tulare County in the South San Joaquin. The farmer didn't want the prison because the small city, which is what a prison is, it's a city, would use too much water. The farm workers, unemployed because a freeze had destroyed several crops, didn't want the prison because having made or known others who make the long circular migration through the valley's fields and crops and other new prison towns, they were convinced they would not get jobs in the prison, but more likely would find themselves either incarcerated or visiting locked up loved ones. While meeting with the farmer, who had defeated several earlier proposed prisons in this county, the Prison Moratorium Project organizers learned that the small group of anti-prison growers had made the conscious transition from not in my backyard to not in anybody's backyard. Why? Mostly, they were perplexed that year on year, after defeating one prison proposal, a new one would pop up in the county, a different host town, same vulnerable water table. One of the farmers, a grandmother, decided in 1999, 20 years ago, to learn a new skill, and so she had her college grandson teach her to surf the web. She discovered and shared with her group that the eminent Rand Corporation, hardly lefty loony, showed that locking up more and more Californians wasn't really solving problems. In other words, they, the Rand Corporation, and they, this group of farmers, did not believe either that achieving some carceral goal would end something called crime or that the pipeline of criminalized people existed because crime was out of control. This is a huge shift in consciousness. They did not argue, as they might earlier have done, this is the farmers now, that the prisons should be in the communities that the prisoners came from. Rather, the farmers decided that, the only, that only a barrier to new prisons altogether would compel urban California, which they tended to call Los Angeles, <laughs> urban California to do something else with their money and their people. These relatively small but prosperous family farmers neither embraced nor opposed the welfare state somewhere else, but at the same time as deeply dependent on seasonal labor, they hardly wanted wage competition or alternatives to weaken their labor market control. 
They spoke approvingly about the de facto porous borders that ensured an adequate supply of migrant farm workers despite whatever immigration laws might be current. So it's very complicated. In the same county, the United Farm Workers, meanwhile, was working to link hungry households with food. Remember, there had been a freeze and people were out of work. Meeting people at distribution centers or going door to door to ensure people realized they were eligible for food and not embarrassed to receive it, the union organizers became aware of members' anxiety concerning the new prison. They put out a scattershot call for help. Prison Moratorium Project got the message a few different ways at once. It bounced through a think tank in Washington, D.C. It relayed between former college roommates, and it surfaced at a dinner of casual acquaintances. Here's the situation. Who can help? Call this number. As it turned out, the public hearing on whether to approve the prison was slated for the Monday following the September weekend that Prison Moratorium Project organizers had scheduled to drive around the valley and meet some lonely opponents who had called the voicemail. In back-to-back -back meetings with the farmer and the UFW organizer in the corner of a diner, California Prison Moratorium Project laid out a strategy they'd derived from their militant research and cut a solid argument against any prison into two or three sentence pieces, each of which would fit the two-minute limit imposed on public comments. All of the sentences were translated so that people could testify in the two major but hardly exclusive town languages, Spanish and English. Other languages there might well have been Hmong, Mixtec, or Urdu. The farm workers spoke, the farmers spoke. They laced their remarks in ways that demonstrated their mutual dependence in a world they can't much control, as well as their unequal power in commanding the undivided attention of the decision-making body. But everyone said their lines, and at the end of the hearing, the council del deliberated and voted unanimously against the prison. I never want to hear about a prison for this town again, one of the council persons said in exhausted disgust. Sharing their experiences later at the small statewide mini-conference strategy session with other organizers, advocates, and scholars, two of the people who testified, a United Farm Workers regular organizer and her teenage daughter, explained how the region's fraught geography gave them no alternative but to speak up for the record and encourage others to do the same. Their need as migrant workers to be in fairly constant motion across space meant that every household had stories of people stopped, detained, threatened by local and county police, who, despite not being federales, wield immigration enforcement along with the many other tools of organized violence. Meanwhile, the organized abandonment of transportation and other infrastructure, promised to get better, of course, with the proposed prison, but never doing so, made both moving about and staying at home difficult. The daughter explained how her high school education seemed in part seemed designed to channel her ambitions to individualistic ends, in part by thwarting her effort to organize a student UFW chapter in her school. So anybody here organizing chapters of Red Nation and so forth can take heart from this story. They talked about how they have had to be creative in order to mitigate the difficulties they and their families and neighbors endure in the region, but also how standing up to the council in a time of hunger shifted some people's consciousness of the union even more than the fact that the union had been feeding the hungry. The observation brings to mind the Black Panther Party for self-defense motto, survival pending revolution. 
or the words U.S. communist organizers spoke to the people whose doors they knocked on after work. Hello, my name is Ruthie Gilmore. I'm from the Communist Party, and I'm here to help you solve your problems. The practical work and attendance shift in consciousness was enabled by, although not fully realized as, the food program. The mode of organizing, if not the outcome, was reproducible, and California Prison Moratorium Project organizers traveled around California, sometimes one at a time, sometimes in twos and threes, to work with communities facing similar challenges. In most cases, some kind of organizational, organizational infrastructure already existed, even if the person who put out the alarm, a photographer, a grumpy grandmother, was not part of a group while small groups found ways to connect with other organizations over common concerns. But more, the mobile organizing unit put communities in touch with one another, and before cheap social media made intense collaboration at least seem easier, people used telephones and fax machines, automobiles, and email to make common cause with strangers across counties and regions, and eventually in other states as well, and now beyond the borders of the United States. The scale and scope of convergences in this small story offers a glimpse into the dynamics of change on the ground of the Golden State's prison terrain. So you see from this story the kind of detailed work that we had to do, the sorts of surprises that we encountered, and the kinds of uh, provisional but not guaranteed solutions that we devised. So I have one more story that's got some detail in it, and then I will give you some highlights of other stories that Rachel might ask about later or might not. But you can read about it all in the second edition of my book that should be out next year. All right. The second one is called 70 Million or More. A handful of people from Critical Resistance and the California Prison Moratorium Project set out to stop a particular new prison, a different one from the one I just told you about. The proposed new facility had been a thank you gift to the California Correctional Peace Officers Association from newly elected Governor Gray Davis in appreciation of the guard's $2 million donation to his campaign. By the way, this is a Democrat. So don't do the Republicans, Democrats thing. It doesn't work that way. Prior research has already had already revealed, by me, um, <laughs> that the state's next prison would be put in Delano, uh, as, as, alongside another new era mega prison. And a mega prison is built, designed for five or 6,000 people. Um, the multi-generation organizers turned their accumulated experience across a wide variety of long-duration campaigns, local, national, and international, to the task of getting advice and contacts from and about already organized people who might be summoned to, stop, to the Stop Delano II campaign. The, they brought strategies and histories from anti-apartheid, black power, agricultural boycott, university anti-racism and anti-sexism campaigns to bear on how they approached people in faith communities, worker centers and hiring halls, social justice and environmentalist groups, schools and colleges, municipalities and development agencies, and of course, unions. The union summers, which I've already discussed a little bit, brought new tacticians into a variety of large-scale organizations that focused on a broad range of people who were vulnerable for any combination of these attributes. They were low wage, high value added, contingent on insecure jobs, women, non-citizens, people with records, public servants across specialties, 
isolated workers of various skill levels, whether truck drivers or home health care providers. Long-term or novice rank-and-file organizers set their sights on workers for whom buttressing their side of power relations on the job would be worth the risk. So outreach involved both identifying and persuading possible members, planning campaigns, winning elections within unions, and getting to the bargaining table. The effort to grow unions ran against strong trends in opposite directions, worker outsourcing, collective bargaining givebacks, narrowing interpretations of rights, eligibility, and discouraging decisions by external governing bodies, especially the National Labor Review Board. Unions also competed with each other to grow membership, and some justified criticism argued that raw numbers seemed to mean more than securing reliable wages, benefits, and job security. Within these labor institutions, members fought over what the union should do, how, and to what end. For many years, members of the California State Employees Association um, struggled to reinvigorate their union's democratic principles and practices. Some of the opposition vying for leadership within that union included non-guard prison workers. The guards had their own union. Non-guard prison workers, especially teachers, who had provided education inside the walls their entire careers. They had firsthand experience of the system's rapid growth and witnessed the CCPOA consolidate its power. As the system acquired square footage and prisoners, educational opportunities withered. The teachers and their comrades in the struggle knew firsthand the role education played in enabling people to go home and stay home from prison, at least under earlier regimes of criminalization. Indeed, they knew that their students were among the people who, at most recent count, add up to about half of the U.S. workforce. Listen to this. 70 million people in the United States workforce who, because of arrest or conviction records, have impediments that keep them from many jobs available to modestly educated people in the free world. So if you add those people together with people who are not documented to work, so think of the 70 million as people who are documented not to work, add those together with people who are not documented to work, you have more than, a little more than half of the U.S. workforce. Think about that. Despite good arguments, the teachers faced a set of structural um, problems that couldn't be solved by petitioning management or even teaching bigger classes. Resources drained away from elementary and secondary level classrooms, and many of the instructional spaces filled with bunks. While during the same period, federal money that had been available to pay for individuals' college education disappeared when President Clinton, another Democrat, eliminated Pell Grants for prisoners in 1994. The Guards Union depended for its size and dues and therefore its political dom donation clout on maintaining a steady flow of people into and growth of the system. Both best practices, guidelines, and contract agreements specified the ratio of custody staff to prisoners, with higher security prisoners producing the highest number of union jobs. In addition, the fate of people released on parole lay in the hands of members of the Guards Union, as parole officers were police rather than the social workers county probation officers had been trained to be. Famously, people on parole in California in these years were twice as likely as people on parole anywhere else in the USA's 50-plus jurisdictions to be sent back to prison on technical violations, 70% as compared with one in three for an additional six to 12 months. Less than a year might seem a short 
uh, seems short relative to growing sentences, but as has been vividly reported in jail studies, even a brief custody period completely upends people's lives, costing them shelter, employment, court expenses, mental well-being, and household and community relations. And I think there are probably people in this audience who can attest to this. At the same time, prison short-timers, not unlike lifers at the other end, rarely had the chance to participate meaningful, if at all, in the remaining classroom opportunities. At the outset, the Stop Delano two organizers had tried to incite enthusiastic response to outreach from non-prison state employees whose agencies and individual jobs were facing the kind of squeeze the prison teachers endured. Opposing program cuts and layoffs was part of the ongoing fight to save the welfare state from organized abandonment but it didn't appear that those whose jobs depended on the forces of organized violence, i.e. people who worked in the prisons, uh, would be particularly receptive given the substantial year-over-year -year increases their wedge of the budget enjoyed. Ah, but there's always intra-institutional competition, as we who labor in higher education know. It's a real thing with real consequences. Complementing efforts to build the popular front, anti-Delano II organizers also tried to starve the project of legislative votes it needed for funding and lugged stacks of reports issued by reputable think tanks from office to office showing that Californians didn't want the prison, Californians didn't think they needed the prison, and Californians didn't want to spend the money on the prison. The goal was politically to link these sentiments with the needs of state social welfare employees and their clients in order to raise questions and spark debates about the proper use of the social wage, which is, say, all our tax money. That said, it came as a surprise when the legislative director of the local union representing non-guard prison employees agreed to a meeting and five organizers drove to Sacramento to see what was going to happen. Despite long preparation for a day that was never, ever guaranteed to come, the organizers were stunned to find that the combination of persistent and targeted outreach with the noisier public face of, of the campaign meant the meeting with several dozen strangers was far beyond entry level, why is this prison a problem? Rather, the people at the meeting who consisted of all different kinds of representatives, shop stewards, including from prisons and so forth, already had reached a conclusion that they, in this group, at least shared that the guards were a problem, that building this new prison was a problem, and indeed a proposed renovation and extension of San Quentin, the state's oldest prison, was something else that should be opposed that we hadn't even put on our agenda. For the union members who agreed to fight the guards union on the terrain of a new prison, the issue came down to renovating the union's larger purpose. The discussion in the room and knowledge, excuse me, the discussion in the room and knowledge prison workers and others brought into the room compelled the analysis to radiate beyond the direct Department of Corrections and focus instead on the opportunities for the union and its members wherever they might work at the moment in the free world. Put another way, while the guard members absolutely required prisons or people on parole, the same was as absolutely not true for the other union members. A locksmith is a locksmith. A janitor is a janitor. A secretary is a secretary. A teacher is a teacher. So that's the end of the detail. Now I'm just going to quickly in seven minutes give you um, brief insights into a number of other campaigns. One of the projects that we took up was trying to work with teachers, especially in kindergarten through 12th grade, 
to figure out how to bring abolition into curriculum organized around stopping this particular prison. And we built on work that had, had emerged from the struggles of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, uh, from La Raza and other groupings in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And as you can read on this slide, which is not a beautiful slide, but it is an informative one, um, uh, a mere 12 is that right? 12 years after the National Defense Education Act had sort of put forward a promise to expand higher education for all different kinds of people and for especially first generation college seekers under the aegis of fighting communism, by 1970, the very people who had in some cases participated in this expansion were worried because as Mr. Freeman said, an educated proletariat is dynamite and that's what I do what I do. Uh, the, Panther, the Panther Party and the two gentlemen on your right, my left, or people who were assassinated at UCLA in 1969, had uh, a very broad educational campaign program. And one of the campaigns had been to change the curriculum and particularly to have some influence on what the shape of black studies at UCLA should be in 1969-70. 50 years ago, John Huggins, my cousin, and Bungie Carter were assassinated for that work that they were doing thanks to the machinations of COINTELPRO, the FBI and LAPD. So moving forward, um, for many, many months, many people worked with organized teachers in a social justice part of the state teachers union and others to do a number of projects, including develop curriculum for K-12 students uh, that they could just bring into their classroom. It's not about prisons. It's about the world we want. It's a different thing than saying we're just against prisons and then organizing that thinking around how to stop prisons. Um, having students, uh, college, uh, excuse me, K-12 students go and lobby their representatives and do many of the other kinds of things that um, many people who are involved in radical movement in the 1960s and 1970s um, here in the United States tried to do. Uh, the struggle linked the vulnerability of young people. Um, in many ways. And in linking those, uh, those uh, vulnerabilities, we started to think as well about the other sorts of vulnerabilities to life and well-being that people had um, throughout California. So the next, um, these are not chronological, they're mostly simultaneous. In fact, this chapter is called Meanwhile, because everything kind of happens meanwhile. Uh, meanwhile, um, uh, a group of organizers approached a, a group of loosely organized people called the Central California Environmental Justice Network to ask if it might be possible to present at their annual uh, conference uh, that was held in the Central Valley uh, a few words about the problems with this proposed prison. And granted 20 minutes, the organizers presented five minutes spoken, two in English and three in Spanish, and then a 15-minute um, uh, documentary that an artist named Ashley Hunt, some of you are probably familiar with his word, work had made for the campaign. And at the end of that, the people in environmental justice did not need one more minute of explanation. They said, we get it, we are with you. And out of that came an organization, Central California Environmental Justice Network, and, um, and ongoing, ongoing projects that last even today. 
The struggle linked the vulnerability of young people, low-wage field workers, aging populations with diminished, hosp diminished hospital and other medical access, the casual toxicity of the regional economy from agriculture to goods transport. IKEA and Amazon have warehouses near there. The threatened water, air, and the well-being of many kids um, and other creatures, including the very non-charismatic, but for a while very famous, Tipton kangaroo rat. Another member of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, Michael Zinzen, had figured out about how pesticides used in urban environments, especially roach spray and, and certain kinds of, of uh, poisons used to try to kill um, rats and, and mice in urban public housing, was contributing to the illness of children, particularly exacerbating childhood asthma, which causes fatalities in the United States of America, and it never should. Um, so picking up from the thinking uh, developed across these various campaigns, the next project was to bring it all back home. Uh, Los Angeles County, the urban California to the Tulare County farmers, was uh, planning to uh, increase a tax on, on residents, a sales tax on residents that would enable hiring 5,000 additional police. So in organizing people in the county uh, to stop that measure and to stop the increase in police, uh, the question went out, what are you doing in your community that you could do more of if resources went to your community instead of to the police and to prisons? And so people came in to talk about what they do with young people, with formerly incarcerated people, with gender nonconforming people, with all different kinds of people. And the fight, which went on and on and on, is kind of symbolized in the way that people talked with money made out of post-its uh, to say what it was they actually want in the world. So this, too, is a picture of abolition. Um, and at the end, the group uh, managed to defeat the measure for the 5,000 additional police and have consistently defeated measures to build new prisons for women in the area. And new prisons for women. And this is a picture by Trevor Paglin, uh, invisible. As well as people organizing on the outside, people who are locked up have been organizing themselves as well. And they've been doing so in a variety of ways. So for example, people in the prisons for women in California, when they heard that the state was going to build lovely new gender responsive prisons for them, managed at great risk to themselves to produce a petition with 3,500 names that, that, that were smuggled out of the prison, blown up, made into a huge role, and dramatically unfurled at a legislative hearing to try to stop those prisons. Similarly, people locked up in the prisons within prisons, in one of the prisons for men in California, Pelican Bay State Prison, had at first tried to figure out a way that they could beg the prison authorities to give them some kind of path way out of a prison, prison within a prison, uh, where at the time there were three ways out. You could snitch, you could parole, or you could die. There was no other way to get out. And in their effort, they first petitioned upward, and all of their um, uh, pleas fell on deaf ears, although they had organized their petition through hunger strikes, and one of the hunger strikers had died. 
after calling off the hunger strike, after receiving no kind of um, meaningful response from the prison authorities, they decided to start again. They reignited the hunger strike at a time when the whole world again seemed to be coming up in uh, protests and opposition to intolerable circumstances. So the so-called Arab Spring, the uprisings in North Africa and West Asia, sparked the imagination of people in a prison for a prison who never can touch a human, another human being, who don't see each other, can only hear each other, who are never in the dark, and who get to go outdoors, if at all, maybe one hour a day. And their second time, instead of throwing their demands up, to the prison administration. Instead, they decided to look at the organization into which the Department of Corrections had set them, an organization that presumed there were racial and ethnic gangs who antagonisms, whose antagonisms were permanent, violent, and unchangeable. And they said, oh, we can change this thing. So they put out a call to end the hostilities among the races. So my very last words, I've gone a few minutes over time. Capitalism requires inequality, and racism enshrines it. The Pelican Bay State Prison Collective, the one that I just told you the story of, hidden from each other, experiencing at once the, the torture of isolation and the extraction of time from their lives, refigured their world, however tentatively, into an abolition geography by finding a basis on which to rework their experience and understanding of possibility. In other words, through which they changed their consciousness in part by seeing where their power actually lay. The fiction of race, the fiction of race projects a peculiar animation of the human body. And people take to the streets in opposition to its real and deadly effects. So you all know Black Lives Matter, you all know Red Nation, and so forth. And in the end, as the, as the relations of racial capitalism, which is all of capitalism, take it out of people's hides, the contradiction of skin becomes clearer. Our largest organ, vulnerable to all ambient toxins, skin at the end, is all we have to hold us together, no matter how much it might seem to keep us apart. Thank you. That concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation. At last, we've been looking forward to being in these easy chairs with the water and the table for months. Because <laughs> we were working together, working and working and working, and then serendipitously today. Today. Um, that was an amazing talk. Thank you. You covered so many, wow, it is so bright in here. Do I look like I'm just like about to have an operation? <laughs> you covered so many different areas. And um, so I wrote down a few questions. Um, uh, one thing that comes to mind, the um, number of 70 million that you mentioned mm -hmm. of people who have impediments through arrest or conviction and therefore are made vulnerable and have to find work in a more precarious or informal economy. When we were working on the piece, um, the New York Times said they called 
They spoke extensively to a statistician at the Bureau of Justice Statistics mm -hmm. who said that the number is actually 100 million. Great. But they couldn't use it because they said, we haven't figured out how to adjust for dead people mm -hmm. and people who have multiple convictions across state lines. Mm -hmm. But it may be even more. And, this, and if it's 100 million, then it's more than the number that comprises the American workforce, mm -hmm. basically. People who have... Pushing it, pushing it. The workforce is around 150 million, just about. Um, not including all the children who are exploited by their parents, you know, working on the farm and renting the bodega and whatever. There's, there's also that, but the official workforce. So you mentioned um, this classic Communist Party line mm -hmm. of, um, my name is Ruthie Gilmore, and I'm here to help you solve your problems. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it somehow brings home the idea that abolition practical door-to-door -door campaign work and the kind of work that it is on other levels is about trying to figure out how to help people with their daily life and the mm -hmm. problems that they do experience and the ways in which their needs are not being met. It's not just about closing prisons. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Abolition is not just about closing prisons. In fact, that doesn't make any sense in the larger scheme of things because closing prisons, which is generally a good idea, um, doesn't resolve all of the other problems that combined to make this enormous prison expansion program that all of the United States uh, experienced in one way or another happen. So um, the two stories that I just told in detail give you some, you know, broad set of insights into the different kinds of struggles people are having. In some cases, struggles that also involve conflict, like the farmers and the farm workers in Tulare County, and or the guards union and the non-guards union in in the California state, as well as the ways that people figure out how to resolve those issues, at least provisionally, to do something else. Right. And the prisons themselves aren't really solving these people's daily life problems either, right? Prisons don't solve anything. Right. Um, you, had this you told me a story about working with the mayor of which town was it, um, where you figured out that the jobs that were promised by the California Department of Corrections um, were way pie in the sky numbers, and in reality, you counted how many? They, Seventy-two. They promised how many? They promised one thousand six hundred. One thousand six hundred jobs for a community that probably had n n not a huge community. No, twenty-seven thousand people, maybe. So, it's, so it's that's a significant number of jobs. jobs. Yeah, a lot of jobs. Yeah, um, and in fact, they had seventy-two. Maybe. 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 So, so, so here's the kind of thing that a nerd can do <laughs> that's useful. So if you have nerdly inclinations, go with it. Um, one of the things that happens for any big project of any kind, um, well, at least until the current administrations in Washington and elsewhere obliterate um, the rules, uh, is that a big project has got to produce an environmental impact statement or report. 
And the statement or report, although the first word is environmental, is not only about the um, effect that the project will have on what might, one might think of as nature or the natural environment. It's actually the entire environment, which includes the built environment, it includes the cultural environment, it includes the employment environment, it's actually everything. Um, the problem with how many, I won't say all, but many environmental impact reports and studies that I have read um, uh, display is that the work is done to comply with the letter, not the spirit of the law. They're really badly put together. They're not well intellected, although they're done by people with PhDs in geography like me. I mean, people who went to the same school I went to. So I know they learned how to do things properly. They don't have to because their job is to crank these things out quickly. So they do, again, to the letter of the law. And um, so in combing through uh, the Delano, uh, Delano II prison environmental report, you know, I read the employment thing, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I said, I think I can figure out how few of these jobs will actually stick in this community. So I did the arithmetic. It, was, it wasn't even higher math. It was just arithmetic. And um, came up with 72. Then I turned it all over to my research assistant, this great guy called Pete Spinagle. And Spinagle redid the numbers, and he came up with 72. Then I went and got a PhD student in statistics, because maybe it was statistical and not arithmetical. And she did it, and she came up with 72. So here's the funny thing. I just want to tell this little other story. So I came up with it. We publicized this everywhere we could. We talked about it in the streets of Delano, door to door. Um, we just told people, this is the best that will happen. Along the way, a New York Times reporter, the other time I ever talked to the New York Times, although I didn't really, I just talked to you and the fact checkers. Um, uh, uh, a reporter called Evelyn Yevis called me to ask me about my findings. So I talked to her for, I don't know, like two hours on my cell phone. And this was the year 2000 when talking on a cell phone was really, really costly. Um, so I spent two hours on my cell phone talking to her and plugging it in and talking to her and convinced her of the veracity of my claims. And then she went and talked to the mayor of Delena. And she told him what I told her. And he said, well, here's the problem that I face. This town is doing so badly that even 72 jobs or something wow. is not a number I can turn my nose up at. But in the New York Times story, nobody fact-checked this, the, the number was attributed to the mayor of Delano, not to the professor in Berkeley. But I not really, my New York no, Times no, no, story. No, 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 this is back in 2000. And at first, of course, my feelings were hurt because I oh, I did all that arithmetic. Um, <laughs> but then I thought, well, how much better could it be than for the mayor of the town to say the number than for some outsider with an office at a fancy university in the Bay Area to say the number? So I was actually pleased to have been ripped off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So about like the Environmental Justice Conference and um, like the, the general types of struggles that people who live in the Central Valley face, I thought it would be worth even go going into that a little more in depth when you really look at it. It's quite stark. They have the worst air in the nation. One million people drink poisoned water. Um, they 
you know, I think it's like the highest concentration of minimum wage jobs in America, in, in Fresno, that I, from what I've read. In any case, so what, if you could generally explain, like, there's, there's money going into prisons. I mean, let's say it's plateauing now, or it has mm -hmm. plateaued, although California still spends quite a bit of money on corrections, and in fact, even despite the Supreme Court order to reduce the prison population in 2011, their costs are still going up. They reduced it by 20% um, in 10 years, I believe, or in the last five years, and it's gone up 7% because guards are getting wage increases and pensions cost money mm -hmm. and all of that. So why is there money for, for that? Mm -hmm. But there isn't money to provide basic services to people who live in the region that grows a great deal of the United States' food. Mm -hmm. Political will. I mean, that's why. It's, the money exists. Um, the political will to determine how the money's spent isn't strong enough to spread the money to the people who should have it. And the political will for prisons is very strong. It remains strong, although it's not as strong as it was, not in California in, and not in general in the United States, although the political will for jails, you might think a prison and a jail are the same, they're not, um, has been rising, kind of ticking up for two reasons. Okay. Um, I'm, shall I stray into jails? Yes, I will. Sure. I shall stray into jails. I'll lead us back if we need to go back. 24 minutes and 41 seconds left. Jails. Jails are, uh, so prisons are, are establishments where people will serve a sentence if the sentence handed down is for a year and a day or more, even if they don't do the year and a day, if that's what the sentence is in the conviction. Um, uh, jail is for a year or less. And so jails tend to have people uh, moving through them a lot more. There's a lot of churn in jails. Most of the people who are in jail in the United States are there waiting um, for trial because they can't afford bail. I'm going to show you something. There we go. So you can just have facts. Um, uh, are awaiting trial, and then some people are actually serving sentences. But there's been a lot of movement on the part of county sheriffs, and there are 3,100 counties in the United States, to expand their jail capacity. Why? One, because as state prison systems feel crunches because of uh, unfavorable court rulings, this is the California case, or uh, because of legislative changes in budgeting priorities, as has happened in some other states, the legislatures have at the same time changed sentencing rules for certain kinds of convictions so that it becomes uh, impossible for the counties, where everybody's convicted for all of these things, to send them to the state. They have to keep them at the county. And so the counties say, well, we have to expand our jail. The other reason, which has been very compelling in many counties, is the counties are expanding capacity, assuming that they can rent the capacity to ICE or the US Marshals. And this is happening all over the United States. And that actually, um, although people are often frothing at the mouth about private prisons in the ICE arena, um, the fact is a lot of the private contracts under which 
uh, uh, detained people, Im people under immigrant detention are being held, are contracts with county jails. It's happening all over the United States, and it's been happening for quite some time. Um, so these things are happening. So again, the political will to funnel the money into the jails is there. The political will to funnel money into expanding rural hospitals that have been grievously depleted is not. A building is a building. An employee is an employee. So the difference is politics. It's not dollars. If you don't remember anything else I said tonight, please remember that and remember this. Oh, I have one more thing. <laughs> Oh, we're on the remembering thing. This is about private prisons. I'm going to stand aside so everyone can see it. All right, growth of private prisons. So you see the line at the top and you say, whoa. You see down here is low, low yellow line. That's the growth of private prisons. This, the yellow line down here, not up there. Up there is all the prisons. This is private prisons as a portion of all the prisons. Now we come back here and we say, when did prisons start to grow? They started to grow in the late 1970s. And I can explain all that in great detail in another time when I come to the Lannan Foundation, <laughs> which I'd be happy to do. All right, so prison growth starts, late 70s, early 80s. Where do the privates start taking off? After. They're parasites. They're parasites. They're parasites. If every single contract, every single contract were ended tonight, how many people do you think would be released tonight? Zero. Zero. They're not in prison because of the private contracts. Zero. It's just that the public entity would take over management. That's, that's the difference between public and private in this country. All right. Off my soapbox. Now, Back to is, my chair. This is very important, and once you become attuned to it, it um, it's impossible not to be frustrated and even slightly enraged because it's so ubiquitous to hear from people that say, who say, oh, yeah, I mean, the private prisons. There's something about a profit motive that really gets under people's skin, and then they decide that that's the thing we need to get rid of. Mm-hmm. You know, going after profits is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But, like, you know, wage increases is a way to go after profits. And uh, having uh, wealthy individuals and corporations pay their fair share of taxes. Go back to the Eisenhower era. If you want to know what fair is, it's 90%. Um, Eisenhower, Republican. Um, uh, that, that having people pay their fair share of taxes uh, is a way to go after profits. There are many ways to go after profits. In the case of prisons, um, uh, because people, I think, are trying quite genuinely to come to some understanding of what capitalism, capitalism has to do with all this, um, we'll look at something, a corporation, and corporate is one of those dirty adjectives, corporate power, corporate this, corporate that, and say, well, then, now we can see what the problem is. It all must come from there. 
Now, my argument in my book, and my argument that I very lightly outlined at the beginning of my talk tonight is the problem is capitalism. The problem is capitalism, saving capitalism from capitalism. But how that works out should not be confused with how we follow the money. And not all money is profit. So when we follow the money from the state budgets through the prisons, where, do, where does it go? It goes into wages and salaries whether for the guards or the teachers or the locksmiths or the um, secretaries. The money that goes through the prisons also goes to something that produces profits, such as utility companies. That's one of the biggest expenditures for prisons, which is not surprising because a prison is a city. And so the lights never go off. The lights never go off. So utility companies get huge chunks of the annual budget of any prison, or jail for that matter. Where else does it go? Debt service. Not all, but almost all of the prisons and jails built in this new era, so starting at the beginning of this, is the graph still there? Yeah, starting at the beginning there, um, were built with debt, right? So that debt service means paying back a loan. Debt service sounds like jargon. Paying back a loan that was lent to the state or the county or the city to build the jail. And when the state or the county or the city go off to investors and say, would you lend us money to build a jail? They also say to those investors, we promise we'll keep it full because if we don't keep it full, then we don't have to pay you back the, the loan. Right? This is really different from looking for the private prison. It's really different, even though there's a profit there. Um, so there's debt service, there's utilities, there's wages and so forth. And then there are all the other parasitical things that come into play that you probably know about. For example, how um, it's, it's extremely expensive for somebody in prison to call out, and it's not that cheap for somebody outside to call in. Um, it's extremely expensive for people to get um, it's what's called canteen, like you know, sneakers or better toothpaste or whatever things you know, people might want inside because the states have given contracts to the equivalent of like prison Amazon, but it's not Amazon yet, but it will be, um, <laughs> to provide all of the approved goods that prisoners are allowed to have. And there's a huge markup on it because it is quite literally a captive audience, right? And so the families have to pay the extra money, whereas they could just go down to the you know, Target or wherever and buy the sneakers, put them in a box, take them to the post office, send them off for you know, $20 instead of $80. So there's profit extracted there. But the, all of those profit um, opportunities are parasitical. Does that mean it doesn't matter? Of course not. It matters. But make a campaign that's going to matter for the lives of the people for whom you think you're struggling. And again, ending a prison contract does not relieve anybody who's locked up of one minute of time that they owe to that building, including people in indefinite detention, which is the case with many um, undocumented people and people scheduled for deportation. When you talk, like when you were giving your talk and just now, I'm reminded I come back again and again to a pretty 
basic concept that doesn't cease to be important to me to think about how prisons work. And I know we're talking very specifically about California, but it, it, correct me if you feel I'm wrong, but I do consider California a kind of like a lightning rod. And it has something to do with, um, it's a, a writ large version of the way capitalism has worked in the United States since the decline of the manufacturing age. You know? <laughs> and we send people from large urban areas, Southern California, I think 65% of people in prisons in California come from the larger metropolitan area of Southern mm -hmm. California, Los Angeles. And then they're put on buses and taken to these totally rural locations in the middle of industrial farming. That's pretty bizarre when you think about what it is as a solution, as you would say, to social problems. But the thing I come back to is that prisons, um, over this last 40 years of a dense, concentrated, busy building of new prisons, um, they aren't built because of need. It's not like the county jails were burgeoning with people that ha were going to then have to be put on buses. I mean, not have to, but mm -hmm. had been um, you know, court-ordered to be put on buses to fulfill their commitment to the state. They get built, and then they end up, and then the state becomes very good at filling them. Mm -hmm. And this is why the Supreme Court told California that you can't build your way out of the problem. Can mm -hmm. you explain a little more about how mm -hmm. that works? Like they build a prison and... The next day it's over. It's, so they, it's they can't too. ever um, solve the problem of overcrowding through expansion. Right, because overcrowding actually for the system is not a problem other than when people take them to court over the conditions of confinement. So the theory that the attorneys used in pursuing the 20-year-long case about premature death due to medical neglect was a theory that said, ah, the reason people in prisons in California, prisons for men and prisons for women, um, are dying because of neglect is that because the prisons are so overcrowded that the medical staff cannot attend to people in a timely way. The legal staff tried a number of different theories, and this is the one that worked. So don't confuse the theory with what, you know, the full story of what people inside were talking about, complaining about what the problems were with the medical staff, staffing and the neglect of, of people in prison. Um, so there was, like, much more active neglect than, oh, the doctor can't make his way through the hordes to see somebody who's suffering from something that turns out to be fatal. That is not the case at all. Um, and so what happened in that case was um, after several separate cases found their way eventually to a preliminary court hearing of the Ninth District of the federal um, system, the federal court system, the Ninth District being notoriously the most quote-unquote liberal of all of the federal court districts in the United States, that district ordered the several cases to join up into one case. So they did, after years of working separately, although all the lawyers knew each other and talked to each other a lot. Um, and then the, the case became one case, and the Ninth District actually was the one that had ruled that California had to reduce the number of people in prison and could not build its way out of the problem and they didn't have to reduce the number of people who were in its custody. They had to reduce the number of people held in the actual physical plant that California had. 
So one of the things California did, as you know, was they shipped some people out of state and rented beds elsewhere. So that would have looked like private prisons, although most of the rented beds were in public facilities elsewhere. Um, and then those people started coming back as certain changes to sentencing made it possible for people to get eventually be released instead of just shuffled around. And so that's what led to the, the reduction in the number of people in prison. And the other reason there was such a dramatic reduction in the number of people in prison in California was a concerted campaign on the part of people advocating on behalf of people in prisons for women that the, that the state not build those new prisons that I talked about for like two seconds in my talk, um, but rather take seriously the original mandate that the commission overseeing that project had had, which was to identify um, 4,000, at least 4,000 people in prisons for women who, quote, shouldn't be there. Now just think about that conceptually, right? And think about making up a number and saying 4,000, 2,000, 5,000, 6,000. Think about it. And think about what kind of manifestation of a flickering political consciousness shaped that call and then ask yourselves, because I don't have time to do it tonight, how it is possible that a state commission would have come up with such um, a call if it had not been for the abolitionist work happening on the ground over and over and over and over and over and over again elsewhere. When you talk about gender responsive prisons, I, I'm familiar with that campaign because mm -hmm. I knew some of the people, um, some of the incarcerated people who signed the document that they did not want a new building um, built and designed in their names. But when I think of it, I think of those um, razors that are marketed for women and they're pink, but it's just a goddamn razor. They don't change <laughs> anything about it yeah. except how it looks. And it seems like they were saying, or were they responding to the mood of the times by coming up with what they thought would be um, a prison, but that would kind of be housed in the appropriate sheep's clothing? Yes, very sheepy, very sheepy. <laughs> so the idea was... Actually, a throwback to California state prison policy in the late 30s and early 1940s. And the idea was this. Um, because prisons in the period from the late 1890s forward were, and in fact all modern prisons, but particularly those, um, were designed kind of based on the assumption that the person held in the prison was going to be a healthy young man. And that the you know, effects of being locked up you know, in the cold or in the wet or in the stone or in silence or in enforced work or you know, what have you um, was something that was going to be visited on the person of a healthy young man. So if you think about the military, the military is also based on that model. The assumption is that the recruit will be a healthy young man. And it's probably still, even though the desegregation of the, of the armed forces has continued apace, that that's the thinking. So um, many people uh, trying to advocate for people who didn't fit that profile would say, prisons are bad for elderly people because they're not healthy young men. Prisons are bad for women because they're not healthy young men. And prisons are bad for children because they're not healthy young men. The unfortunate sort of blowback of that was 
that those kinds of arguments, and I was guilty of them too, uh, for a while. You just named all these people we can build prisons for. Exactly. Old men, young exactly. children. So, you know, we weren't reducing anything. We were just like giving opportunities. So just as capitalism saves capitalism from capitalism, oh, yuck, we've got all this pollution. Let's, you know, get, put some money into the hands of some inventors who are going to figure out something that eventually will have this huge IPO that will solve the pollution problem, as one of my chemical engineer friends is always trying to do at the University of Houston, you know, filing patents on, almost on a daily basis. Anyway, back to the prison. So this, these arguments produced the possibility of a certain kind of opening, which again, at first, when the Gender Responsive Strategies Commission was formed, um, they put out a call to the wardens, uh, wardens, yes, who ran the three, four then, prisons for women in California to identify people who could be released. But then people talked in probably not smoke-filled rooms because it was after indoor smoking had been banned. <laughs> but morally, that's where they were. And <laughs> they said, well, no, instead of doing that, let's just build better prisons. So they, you know, so. I mentioned that this was a throwback to prison reform in the late 30s and 40s. Up until like the early 40s, uh, women in California prisons were just housed in a different part of the prisons for men. And then they built these cottages in Tehachapi for women prisoners. There's a Barbara Stanwyck movie in which you see a scene where she's wearing like a little house dress and an apron with pockets. Yeah. And they really did build these prisons to be for women and to be like, here you can pretend to run your household until some t such time as you get out and have a household which none of those women was going to have, right? Not a household with a cottage and the curtains and the apron, anyway. Yeah. And, I mean, wasn't there a time in the United States when we didn't even have prisons for women, basically? They or very of, few? They kind of lifted off in the end of the 19th century with the rise of the progressive movement. So capital P, progressivism. I don't call myself a progressive for the following reason. Capital P, progressivism, was a movement on the part of mostly elites who were part of the competitive capitalist world. So what do I mean competitive capitalist? I mean they weren't the monopoly capitalists. They weren't the big railroad owners and those other people who had so much unobstructed uh, power and authority throughout the United States. So progressivism arose um, to enable the competitive capitalist class to go up against the monopoly capitalists and through the dis, um, development of large-scale and complex governmental institutions figure out how to extract value from labor and land. So you get all kinds of terrific things like uh, schools, uh, more expansion of schools and expansion of compulsory public education, and uh, health um, departments, and uh, various uh, improvements to the infrastructure for sewage, and so on and so forth. All kinds of fantastic things came out of this government. But also, what grew up alongside progressivism was an expansion of criminalization and imprisonment, an expansion and consolidation of certain kinds of hierarchies depending on one's foreignness as well as race combined. Um, so Nayan Shah has written about this in the context of uh, San Francisco's Chinatown. And what also was, grew up with progressivism was Jim Crow. 
right? So apartheid and progressivism go together. And if you study progressivism as it moved around the world, you see they grew, grew together in places like South Africa, in mandate, Palestine, mandatory Palestine, as well as places like Mexico City. So this is the problem that we face is actually undoing the reforms of capital P, right. progressivism. Well, um, is it, does it make sense to think that um, looking back upon a time that's not a simpler time, but a time in which women had not become heavily criminalized and there were not so many institutions for women or maybe barely any at all, um, is it helpful to look back on that in order to try to imagine a time now when you can have public safety and you can have a calm civil order without mm -hmm. having these gigantic concrete places that women are being funneled into, like mm -hmm. to think that we don't need them because women are not fundamentally different than they were before. They're mm -hmm. not more, more violent or more devious or prone to the kinds of things the state thinks they need um, mm -hmm. you know, to convict women of and put them in these prisons. I mean, it, is it helpful to imagine that we could live like that again or that the fact that those prisons were not there and have been developed by what you've outlined to me are not arbitrary reasons, but not inevitable reasons. Mm -hmm. Like this happens or that happens, the guards union gives uh, a California governor a million dollars and then he builds them a new prison. If prison is kind of, the building of prison is kind of separate from what happens to people in their lives and when they, you know, the kinds of struggles that they have or the decisions that they make or, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, so those two things are separate. Can we imagine again that, you know, that we can get along perfectly fine, just to mention one population group like women? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can. Oh, my God, the countdown. <laughs> I know. I was trying to kind of, you know, <laughs> arrive at a... Uh... <laughs> All right. I, I think that rather than try to look backward, yeah. we ought to look forward. And, by look, and in order to look forward, we should remember the history as the Aymara teach us, teach us is in front of us. So as we go forward to um, whatever future might unfold, we can think about um, and see around us how people already are living differently, how people's living differently might be derived from historical experiences of groups and places and so forth, so we can see that in the history that's before us. Um, and we can also see uh, quite uh, decisively how the various ways that people figure out how to learn to do new things to solve new problems. I'm not talking about violence, I'm talking about problems in general. People learn to do new things to solve new problems or bring old solutions to bear on new problems, or new solutions to bear on old problems, all can coalesce bit by bit into the creation of and the expansion of abolition geographies. So even though we're out of time, I'm going to tell one more story, um, or two. So, the, um, so one, here's history in, is in front of me, and one of the great uh, chronicler of abolition in practice was the great, great, great W.E.B. Du Bois. And all of you should read Black Reconstruction in America if you want to call yourself educated or if you want to call yourself an organizer or an activist. It's a long book, some of it's a slog, but it's fantastic. 
And one of the things that Du Bois lays out in looking uh, at that period is he shows us how the people who wrote the official histories of Reconstruction kept not noticing what was in front of them. Right? They kept not seeing what was in front of them. So they kept not seeing the ways that freedmen and others arranged themselves into uh, secure and sustainable communities by establishing public schools, by establishing local governments, by establishing relationships between and among towns, by situating themselves in such a way that they could gather together when threatened and spread out and live their lives um, separately when not. And one of the things that Du Bois says in that book, in a footnote, always read the footnotes, is the experience of the Negro worker during Reconstruction provides the researcher with the opportunity to study inductively the Marxian theory of the state. So I say this not because all you all should join me in being excited about studying the Marxian theory of the state, although it's not a bad thing to do, but rather to think about how Du Bois in saying those things incites our analytical and perceptive imagination to think about the world we actually see now and to think about the various ways it congeals and can change into a different world. One of my oldest friends is in the audience. Her name is Ann Nelson. Some of you know her. And she worked for many, many years, and I've only heard a few of the stories, um, helping people uh, keep their Head Start programs vibrant when they were under threat of being closed. I think about that, why people would have to struggle to keep Head Start is already outrageous. But the stories that I've heard from the various places that she went over the years that she was doing this work give us insights into how people can pull themselves together, do pull themselves together in the things they actually want for their communities. So I had to learn not to say to people, why do you want this prison, but rather to ask people, what do you want? It's like totally different. What do you want? And how can we get to it? Um, I worry a lot about thinking that there was a golden age uh, in American history that if only we could get back to, we'll be fine, because it didn't exist. Well, I, w I wasn't trying to I know, but I need to say it for the audience. Yeah. <laughs> I know you don't okay. think that, but just in case anyone in the auditorium thinks that, I just want to say that, that back is not the place. We're still dealing with the uh, contradictions, ongoing contradictions of settler colonialism. We're still dealing with the... Un ongoing contradictions of racism. We're still dealing with the fact that as capitalism saves capitalism from capitalism, the exploitation of human and other natural resources is producing a climate catastrophe. These are all concerns for abolitionists. I mentioned the lowly Tipton kangaroo rat. We actually care about the rat too. And finally, one thing I would like to say is because abolition in the United States is, understandably enough, so strongly associated with anti-slavery movements, many people imagine either that abolitionists only care about black people, nothing could be further from the truth, or that abolitionists are really talking in a cagey and, and subtle way about um, 
some fact which is not actually correct that um, people are in prison so that their labor can be exploited in there. That also is not true. And the movie The 13th did a great disservice to many people by making you think that the problem of prisons arrived when the 13th, 13th Amendment was ratified. That is not the case. Convict leasing started on these shores in British colonial North America in 1620. And the, lease, the convicts who were leased were white people, I mean people who became white. They weren't white, but their descendants were all white. So if you've heard of Georgia, you know about convict leasing. If you've heard of Australia, you know about convict leasing. This is not something that emerged after the end of the Civil War um, that then turned into chain gangs and then turned into mass incarceration. That is a comforting story because it's a story that makes it sound like there are a lot of innocent victims who we can care about. How about we get away from thinking, oh, they're innocent victims. We've got to step up and be empathetic and instead say, what are the political and social and economic problems that face us? How do those, face, those problems um, uh, coordinate the fact of mass incarceration, the fact of mass deportations, the fact of ongoing contradictions of settler colonialism? And what should we do as people who can organize ourselves as school children, union members, artists, um, writers, all of the ways that we can organize ourselves to do the work that we need to do to transform carceral geography into abolition geography. Well, that is a very impressive way to end. Wow. Um, thank you, Ruthie. And she will be in the back signing books. I will? That's what I was told. Oh. <laughs> I'll be in the yeah. back signing books. Oh. I and I'll be say, back there, too. Can I say, say something hi? which is not apropos of anything but everything? Um, in, in the beautiful article that Rachel wrote, and it is so beautiful because Rachel wrote it, um, she shows how one of the people, she shows a lot about how one of the most important people in my life influenced me, and that was my father. And today is the 101st anniversary of his birth, and we are here, and the article came out. So happy birthday, Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives. Music